wanted to do Let It Be because I thought it was a great story, because it was a film, and because it was sort of the end of the Beatles and the end of the 60s and the bootleg tapes and Phil Spector. And, you know, the storyteller sort of took over from the, the music person. Yeah. And I, that's what I just thought it would be. And, and I also, I guess, it kind of evolved where I sort of felt like, well, you know, Let It Be was a documentary, so I could sort of approach the writing of the book as if I was sort of making a documentary, you know, and I, and I like that, that sort of form, you know, because I'm really a journalist first, you know. Yeah. I'm not really, I don't consider myself a critic. I consider okay. myself more of a journalist. So, um, you know, that's kind of where I went. And, you know, it was it was very different in that I interviewed a lot of people for the Let It Be book, and I, I think I used a lot more sources. And it was, you know, it was more, it was more somewhat, I'll con- kind of contradict myself, it was somewhat more, you know, analytical. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, the book has had a really long life, I think mainly because it's a book on the Beatles, and because it's part of that series, that series is a—it's a well-regarded series. Right. I, I feel I feel privileged to be part of that series, and I, I think it's evolved over the years. It's changed, and as different people have become the you know the editor of the whole series, I, I think it changed. It was a, it was a dramatic change when David Barker left, because I think the sense was to sort of to make it younger and to to freshen it up and turn and bring right. bring it a little more up to date. Yeah. So um that was kind of that. And then I I had a couple of false starts on some projects, some ideas. I actually believe it or not, again to contradict myself, there was a point where I thought about maybe doing a book on Bob Dylan and the band together mm-hmm. and and what they did. And um, and then Sid Griffith came out with his book. Uh, I think it was on the basement tapes. And I sort yeah. of said, you know, I think maybe I should pass. I've kicked a few other ideas around. You know, I, I kicked around a, a book on Pink Floyd. I kicked around a book more recently on Eric Clapton. But I, the last few years, I've really started to get deeper again, back into being, you know, a, a Beatle person. You know, I think that the Sgt. Pepper 50th anniversary reissue sort of, I think, kick-started, you know, my my sort of blood for that, you know. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I thought, you know, I really loved the, the idea of how movies and film and music and popular culture sort of all meet. And so I thought, you know, there really hasn't been a book on the films of the Beatles in a while. So I thought that would be a good idea. And it really was just kind of, it was just this sort of idea in my head. And then I ran into an editor that I knew at the 2019 Book Expo because I, for, for the you know, from prior to the last few years, for about the last 20 years, I had been working full time in the book publishing industry. So I ran into him at Book Expo, and um, I told him about my idea because he had always kind of like, you know, what are you up to? And and when, as soon as I told him my idea, he was just in love with the idea of doing it. Huh. And so that was um, May of 2019, and the book pubbed in the States here in May of 2023. It comes out in the U.K. on uh, July 15th. It came out on Saturday, technically. So uh-huh. it was really from concept to publication, it was really four years. Um, you know, I, I didn't see uh, COVID coming. <laughs> I didn't yeah. have a crystal ball. But yeah. that sort of, in some ways, 
kind of helped me because, uh, you know, I, you we're all in lockdown, and so, gee, well, right. I have a book to write, you know, and I've right. got 180 books on the Beatles sitting in my one of my rooms here. Right. Right. And um, and, and the, the the virus sort of delayed the pub date a couple of times that allowed me to to go deeper into the book and it it became a much longer book than than we originally envisioned. Yeah. All right. So tell me tell me a little bit more about the first book and what you thought was your most what was the most surprising source you found for that first book and what your thoughts are around that first cut of that movie right the what what we call the original let it be now and then i want to hear your thoughts on on peter jackson but tell me about the sources for that early book and what sources most surprised you well i think the the sources themselves maybe didn't necessarily surprise me but the thing that did surprise me and and bore fruit with get back the peter jackson series is you know I'd interviewed one of these guys who was around you know while the you know the filming was going on for Let It Be, and he said you know it wasn't all gloom and doom. He right. said you know John Lennon would literally walk into a room and people would just fall down laughing because he's such a cut up. He right. says so it wasn't this you know horrible dour thing that it's been painted as all these years. Right. So when when the idea of Get Back coming out was going to present a different kind of face of it i knew that that wasn't just a gimmick or just trying to rewrite history because my right. research on on the let it be book you know revealed that to me um you know at, at that time when i did the let it be book there were a lot more people around to sort of interview that i was able to get you know or right. they had they were still kind of willing to talk i mean i talked to some of the same people with a different approach for this book. Like I interviewed Michael Lindsay Hogg again. I interviewed okay, um, I interviewed Anthony Richman, who was the director of photography, who's had uh -huh. an extraordinary career in film. I mean, he's worked with everyone you could imagine. He's worked on some amazing films. Um, you know, I talked to some of the people, you know, who were involved with the, you know, with Abbey Road and, you know, so, but there were people that I, I didn't talk to again because they weren't around. You know, they right. just weren't around right. or they just really weren't right. doing interviews. I did try to create a little more sort of context with this book and, and, and talk to people who weren't just involved specifically with the Beatles films or recordings or with Apple because I wanted mm -hmm. some real context. I wanted a sort of – I wanted a little bit of a broader canvas. So one mm -hmm. of the first people that I contacted was Cameron Crowe because I thought, you know, who better to talk about music and movies and rock music, you know, than Cameron? And you know he was he signed on right away. He was like, sure, I'll you know definitely I'll I'll do this. You know, it was yeah. it wasn't hard to convince him to be interviewed. I imagine he's constantly being, you know, asked to be interviewed. So uh, I also got um, Ralph, uh, and I always pronounce his name wrong. Ralph Bakshi, who um, he did, um, you know, he did Fritz the Cat, and he was one of the first guys to sort of do. Um, you know, sort of animated films for adults. You know, so so Yellow Submarine for him was a was a real touchstone because oh, here is this movie that's an animated feature film that's not being made for children. Yeah. So you know, I thought he would be a perfect person to talk to. So I I made sure I got in touch with him and uh, had a great interview with him. 
So, uh, and then I just talked to some of the people, you know, just who were kind of around. There were people that I interviewed that I have talked to over the years since I did the Let It Be book that um, I obviously wasn't able to use for that book that were perfect for this book, like Robert Freeman, you know, who who shot so many of the album covers, who is someone who had, you know, so much input into the, the you know, the sort of iconic, you know, visual look that we've all yeah. come to, um, you know, see of the Beatles, you yeah. know, and obviously he was part of A Hard Day's Night. He, the end sequence, the end title sequence, I guess they call it, you know, that's his work. That's not oh, Richard that's Lester's oh, work. I didn't, oh, I didn't know that, yeah. Yeah. So he did, yeah, so he did all those, they're sort of, what do you call them, those, those photo booth strip things? Yeah, there's an, I think there's some kind of name for it. I forget what it yeah. is, but yeah. yeah, and I mean what it is is basically it's the it's the it's the hard day's night cover, the UK right. cover, you know. Right. So so you know I went back to that interview that I had, that I had done with him, you know I had also you know Billy Preston was another person that I didn't talk to in time to do the Let It Be book, you know. So I was able to get I was able to get him in there, you know, which was he was perfect, you know yeah. uh, to to lend some, you know, more sort of context and background to it. So, I mean, the book is, the, the intention of this book, and I, I know different books are done different ways, and I know the significance of sourcing, but I, I, di I wasn't looking to go out and interview 300 people because there aren't 300 people to go out and interview. I mean, first of all, Paul and Ringo are not going to talk to me. That's just, I, I won't even ask. They're, they're not going to speak to me. Well, yeah, and... They're, they're not very good sources either. Well, I mean, we, we could certainly debate that one way or another. I'm, I'm not going to agree or disagree necessarily. But what I really wanted to do is I wanted to do my research, and I wanted to write it. I wanted to write the story the way that I wanted to write it, which wasn't a, a straight, linear, they made A Hard Day's Night, and then they made Help, and then they made Magical Mystery Tour. I wanted there to be a lot of context and a lot of connective tissue in terms of what else was going on in British film, what else was going on in in, in pop music and rock yeah. music as the culture was, you know, evolving. I wanted to really get into the relationship of the Beatles, how they influenced the 60s, but how the 60s influenced the Beatles. So there's a lot of going back and forth in the book. And I, I just wanted to do that because I don't think anybody else had really done that at mm -hmm. least to the degree that I wanted to do it. I really wanted to take a deep dive into it, you know. And I didn't want to write a book that was just for Beatles fans, you know. Although I, I'm really pleased with the sort of reception that the book has received thus far in the Beatles community. It really has been embraced. And, you know, that's important to me, you know, because I wanted to be accurate and I wanted to add something new and I always know that, you know, there's a sense of, well, you, the only way to add something new is to get original sources and or uncover some, you know, deep, dark secret from the past. Right. You know, I mean, it's just pop music here. You know, it's not, it's, we're not going back and, and um, rewriting the Warren Commission report. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I think that that was, that was the intention. I, I wanted to make it, it's a film book. You know, I think that people yeah. know me as somebody who writes about music. And if you say you're doing a book on the Beatles, the assumption is it's a music book. But I think it's very much a film book. And uh, not to sound like Captain Obvious, but, um, you know, I, tr I straddle the line 
in that I wanted to make sure there was enough depth about the way the songs were written and conceived and recorded and the various versions that have come out over the years. You know, I think that was the other thing that I wanted to do with this book is that there's been some great film books on the Beatles. I think the Roy Carr book is, you know, really a beloved book hmm. uh, in terms not just the writing and the research, but, you know, it's a beautiful-looking book with a lot of memorabilia and, you know, album covers and singles covers and photographs. And But there's been all of these reissues of the films on DVD and Blu-ray over the years, and right. I wanted to bring that material into it. I thought that was important. You know, the way the films have been preserved. You know, I talked to the Karsh family who own the, all the rights to A Hard Day's Night and all the memorabilia and everything connected with it, and they share the rights um, with the Beatles for help. So they're real curators of the process. And, mm -hmm. and the Criterion Collection folks, I spoke with them too because, mm -hmm. you know, they're, they're cur the current version of A Hard Day's Night that's out there that you can buy is the Criterion Collection. You know, it's right. a very sort of, you know, curated, bespoke, you know, edition treating the film with the significance that it deserves to be treated. It's not just some music film by some rock band, right. you know. So, so those are the kinds of things that, that I, I really wanted to do. I mean, I, I, I didn't set out to write a scholarly book. It's not that. And I didn't set out to write a critical analysis and I didn't really set out to write something that was going to be just chock full of brand new news. I wanted to synthesize a lot of, a lot of information and data and material and just, you know, create, you know, something that I think was, was different than what's been out there. Yeah. All right. So I'm really curious when you talk to Michael Lindsay Hogg, you talked to him twice, right? Did you come back to him? Yes. years later, right? So you yeah. talked to him twice. So what did you want to find out from him the first time? And the second time you talked to him, had Peter Jackson come out yet, or was that movie on the verge yeah. of that? Or? Yeah, I, I talked the second time. I talked to Michael after the series had been aired, oh, and uh, I had seen it. You know, I had a chance to see it. And, right. um, you know, first time around, it was just simply, you know, here's the guy that, you know, directed Let It Be. And, right. you know, Michael is... Uh, you know, he's one of these sort of renaissance people. I mean, his work on, you know, Ready, Steady, Go, you know, is so significant to the visual look of rock music and pop music. And, you know, beyond the sort of work that he's done on the, on the music films, I mean, he worked on Brideshead Revisited. I mean, right. he's done feature films. He's done theater. He's an accomplished painter, photographer. He's royalty. <laughs> He's a baronet, I believe, but he's uh -huh. the nicest guy in the world. I mean, he is uh -huh. the, he's just a lovely man, and yeah. he's so open and generous with his time and genuine about what he does. I mean, he is really, he, you know, there are not too many people left around like Michael. You know, I had a chance mm -hmm. to meet him a couple of times, too, and spend a little time mm -hmm. with him, and um, he's just, he's extraordinary. So, I mean, this time around, it was really mostly to just get a sense of what, you know, what he thought of Get Back and what he thought of Peter Jackson. Well, him mm -hmm. and Peter Jackson, it's sort of a mutual admiration society. I mean, they both mm -hmm. have tremendous respect for each other. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, you know, Michael was comfortable with what Peter did, and Peter wasn't going to even do it unless Michael was good with it. You know what I'm saying? Right. And right. they had right. a steady dialogue, you know, all the way through – 
you know, the making of it, and I think that that dialogue, I think it continues, you know. You know, these are people who truly appreciate, you know, approach what they do from the heart, and it's, they're, they're filmmakers, and they're artists, and they respect the legacy, and they respect that they have such a significant involvement with the Beatles, you know. And mm-hmm. so, uh, and they're, you know, they're fans, but they're not fanboys, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So um so it was great to get that sort of, you know, context again. I tried to sort of, you know, not think too much about what Michael and I talked about the first time around. I just wanted to it was like a brand new interview. You know, I wanted to just approach it fresh and right. and that was, you know, that's what I was looking to do. And you know, he was I talked to him pretty late in the process. I mean, for obvious reasons because it's the last part of the book. Uh, I think Michael had some health problems, so there were some times it was a little tough to get a hold of him. But um, so yeah, it was it was great. And you know, Anthony too. I mean, I talked to him so much more this time. This interview mm. was a little bit more in depth, and mm. uh, and we sort of we, we even though it's been a long time since we talked, we had kind of we already kind of had established a relationship, you know, this time around. And I mean, he's worked with, and I say this in the introduction, I mean, he's worked with like every major British film director that you can imagine <laughs> since I believe the 50s, perhaps. Uh, it may even go back that far. So mm-hmm. he he was great because it was really a, he's a strict film person. Meanwhile, he's worked on movies with David Bowie, you know. So uh, it was great to get sort of his insight. But I didn't want to bog the book down too much with he said, she said, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I really wanted it to be sort of taking everything and then synthesizing it and then sort of laying it out. Again, almost maybe not as documentary style as the Let It Be book, you know, but um, it was a lot of material to, to synthesize. It was it was it was it was not easy. <laughs> I think the yeah. Let It Be book was wasn't easy either, but this book was. This was a this was a really large canvas, you know. This book. Yeah. So remind me, I'm not sure if I if I'm just not remembering, but I'm very curious if I, in either book, was there was there ever any suggestion that Lindsay Hogg's uh, cut of the movie that that the Beatles asked for any revisions in his cut? Yes, yes. I I think that what happened was. The one particular one that stands out, and I don't believe that this is this is really breaking news to anybody, but I do believe that early on when the Beatles were all shown um, a, um, an advanced cut of it, that and I don't I think this this filtered down from the Beatles to whoever Peter Brown or whoever at Apple, and said, and and Michael heard from three of the Beatles saying there's one particular person that maybe there's too much of them in this movie and the person uh-huh. that they're with, if you can read yeah. between the lines. I think it's obvious yeah. what I'm saying. Now, I'm not yeah. saying that necessarily as a criticism or that I'm agreeing that that was a problem or disagreeing. It was just it's that's what happened. You know, I, I don't think yeah. that's necessarily a slight against um, John and Yoko. I mean, to be blunt, to be frank. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, I mean, I know that. That was that. I'm sure there was other little things that, you know, why did you do that or you should have done that. or. But I, I think for the most part, you know, the Beatles had always sort of like early on with George Martin, 
they would reach a certain stage in the recording process where they would sort of say, okay, we're done. You guys yeah. take care of it. You guys, yeah. you know, you mix it, you you master it, you you band it, you do whatever you guys do. And, you know, and but obviously as things went along, the Beatles became more involved in every aspect of the album, you know, everything. You know where they were in they were in control. They were in charge. Those four guys, <laughs> the four-headed monster, as they were sometimes referred to yeah. by the people who were on the inside of the storm. So, but the, the issue I'm curious about. I, I mean, the Yoko thing sort of makes sense, but it's less. I don't know. It's less interesting to me. But the thing I'm really curious about is that the reason that these sessions got dubbed as dour and downbeat is sort of, you know, they're falling apart. is because that movie is cut really like the first two acts of that movie are very, there's, they're kind of boring. I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of a, you know, like we would never expect to, for Beatles sessions to look like that. And then they get up on the roof and it's like, Oh my God, there, there it all is. It's all completely there. They just didn't have not been revealing it to the cameras. But I'm very curious how, you know, they sort of signed off on this cut for this movie. And I think that Peter Jackson's cut actually shed some very interesting light on Michael Lindsay Hogg's original cut. In other words, why did that first movie make it out the way it did? It's always baffled me. And well, think, I've been deeply yeah. fascinated by it my, well, my I whole think life. a lot to unpack there, and I'll, and I'll try to see if I can sort of condense it. Is okay, I think, good. first of all, I, I don't think that by the time that the film was going to come out and a final cut was ready, they were sort of done. They were kind of yeah. like, we don't even care. We don't, we're yeah. just finished with this thing, okay? Um, you know, it was, it was Alan Klein who was like, we owe United Artists a movie. And right. if we put out a movie, there's going to be a soundtrack album. And right. we need to, we need to, you know, they have, the, he, he cut a new deal with EMI. We need to right. get some product out there. I and mean, that's what the Hey right. Jude album is all about. It's clients right. saying, okay, we have a new contract. What do we do? We got to get some product out there. We got to make right. some money. Right. Okay. Right. So this is part of that. And they're sort of done with it at this point. And I guess that Michael sort of wanted to show, you know, hey, you know, these guys, they're breaking up. <laughs> okay. Right. And this is kind of what's happening here. And right. if I, I think in retrospect, if he wanted to do it over again, and it would have to be a much longer film, you'd have to show a lot more of the sort of happy stuff that went on at Apple. You know what I mean? I think there was yeah. that. I don't think people had the sort of, huh, this is not the right phrase, but I don't think back then people had the stomach for sitting through eight hours of the Beatles sitting in a recording studio. Oh, oh I completely agree. I agree. You know, but it, but the original film is what is what sort of sets this, what gives people the idea that these were very depressing sessions. Right. right? I mean, that's where that that's where that starts. It's because that cut of that movie emphasizes. We know from Peter Jackson that there are all these like wonderful exchanges, and that that uh, Hogg had access to all of that stuff he just didn't use it i think it's really interesting how that how he assembles that and how yes i agree they just sort of like resigned at this point because it's right it's 1970 and they're basically like it's just over there it's over I mean, mccartney's album is out right, and all right, of that right, controversy right. you know and I, right. I think there's a sense too of like you know he just well how long is this movie going to be and okay well he twickenham's a film studio so I'm making a film. 
I think when we get to Apple in the basement in this cramped little makeshift studio, this is not you know this is not a, this is not a film studio. Um, you know, I mean, I, I can't get completely into Michael's head, but you know, in talking to him, I think that's kind of part of it. It's it's like get this thing out. You know right, what I mean? Right, you know, don't this right. this is what happened with the rock and roll circus too, where right. it it's you know although that you know although let it be did come out right away, the rock right, and roll circus right. sat in a can for right, you know for right. decades and didn't come out right. for thirty years or whatever. So right. I think there was a sense of okay, well we showed them at Twickenham, and then well you know the studio stuff, well we'll show that um, after the or before the rooftop with these right. acoustic performances. So if it's right. in the studio, we'll show these kind of finished pieces rather than more of the Twickenham sitting around, well, what right. are we doing? I think right. that, that that sort of dramatic sense of in the beginning, they're just kind of noodling around. And by right. the time they get to Apple and it gets close to the rooftop and they start getting close to some finished recordings, then it's, it becomes like you're in a recording studio, and and I think Michael's Michael's a filmmaker. You know what I'm saying? So he's yeah, trying yeah. to capture that. You yeah. know. Um, so, you know, the Beatles themselves, like you bring up Let It Be. It's like I remember when I, you know, I had a chance to interview David Crosby, and everything's going along great until I brought up Woodstock. You know, it's like, yeah. oh no, we're going to talk about Woodstock again? You got to be kidding me. You know. Yeah. It's like yeah. you get to the part of the conversation where you bring up "Let It Be," and it's like they don't want to—they don't want to talk about it because it's right. the end, and right. you know the, all the bad blood between you know Paul and George, and right. you know Paul you know quitting, and John said first, "Well, I'm going to quit," and they'll keep it quiet, and then Paul right. quit, and John was like, "Well, good, I'm glad you said it, but gee, I should have been the one to say it first. Right. You know, we could go back and forth with all of yeah. that right. stuff. Right. You know what I mean? So. Right. Some of that stuff becomes a lot of inside baseball, and it becomes a lot of, you know, he said, she said, you know, yeah. which camp are you in? Are you in the Paul camp? Yeah. Are you in the John camp? Yeah. You know, or you, do you subscribe to, you know, the sort of Philip Norman philosophy? You know, there's somebody wrote a whole book about kind of the different music books on the Beatles that are out there and what the different agendas and camps are and all that. I really tried to avoid that, you know. Mm -hmm. And, and you know what? Sometimes people, I think, what they want to do is they want to place like armchair psychology, and oh, they want sure. to get inside the heads of these people. Sure, you know, sure. or, or they think that they know they know more. A, a person knows more about John Lennon than Paul McCartney does, <laughs> right? <laughs> or vice versa. Right. Now these two guys right. lived in each other's pockets for ten years or more, yeah. and there are people yeah. who come along and and seem to think they have more of an insight into the relationship. You know, so just one more piece of slightly insider baseball, but I'm just curious what your research shows you. I mean, I think it's very dramatic in the Peter Jackson film. Where you get actually up on the roof and you see that they're just feeding these cables down four floors to the basement where Glenn Johns is monitoring, right, at the live performance. And then they go back and they listen to this playback. As far as I can tell, this myth is true that there is no sweetening on any of those live tracks. Is that your sense? Well, I don't think that anything like that we ever hear, whether it's the Let It Be album or whether it's the Let It Be Naked or it's, you know, uh, that Let It Be box set. I mean, I, other than like outtake outtakes, 
you know, I, I don't think any of this stuff is just absolutely left alone. I mean, there's stuff that while it's being recorded, they're sweetening it on the fly. And then I think that there's things that they go back later and they 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 tweak things here and there. They slow things down. They speed things up. They add a little high end. They, oh, Ringo's drums doesn't sound right. You know, boost that up. I mean, it's just the nature of... Things. Oh, I, I yeah. yeah. Let's talk. But I, I yes, I agree. I but I want to talk about sort of like, you know, A grade sweetening, which would be like overlaying a new guitar line, right? And B grade or C level, which is you know making sure that the you're hearing the tom tom in you know as in the, in proportion to the snare, those kinds of adjustments, which I wouldn't really call sweetening. But my sense is that. They do not sweeten any of that rooftop concert. They do not go back and add a new bass line or fix a vocal. You mean is that your sense? Well, what are you what are you talking about? Are you talking about the Get Back film? No, I'm talking about the Peter Jackson rooftop sequence. I'm sure that there's tons of sweetening and there's tons of stuff going on. They had all so that new D, guitar D mix. So, I, I don't think they necessarily added a new guitar or something, but I think that they 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 had this D mix. Um, oh yeah, I understand so, about the demix stuff too, right? Again, but I that's all just using I don't think exact, that, from what I remember, I don't think there's like a new vocal or a new guitar right. part or any of that kind of stuff. Right. But um, I don't want to say that a hundred percent because I don't have my research right in front of me. But if well, my but we don't have but we don't have any sources. There don't seem to be any sources that say like there is with the Shea Stadium thing where they they had an overdub session. Like we know that right. right. That's on the book. Right. But right. for the rooftop, we don't have any, you know, it's like, that's it. They took what they could get. They obviously, obviously Jackson helped enliven and clarify and separate, right? All of that. What, right. What, what's the term we're using? Demix, demuxing, whatever it is. Right, right. He developed right. some new digital strategies and that's where we're going for the all of the future of the catalog, right. obviously, right? But, I still think it's rather phenomenal that they went up there and it was, what, 40 degrees? Right. And they're playing all this stuff live and it's going straight to tape and it's basically that's what they played. I still think right. that is absolutely astonishing. I know it is. But there are musicians who will listen to that, you know, people who, you know, have made a living from being a musician, and they'll listen to it and they'll say, oh, there's a bad note there. Or, oh um, yeah, no. That, no. Well, that's but that's part of the charm of it, actually. Well, is of course. Like right. I, I dig a pony. Actually, you know, the starting tempo is very different than the ending tempo, and right. that's just exactly. a very natural thing to do, right? They're just right. speeding up because they're excited. But it, it, it's not like that's a flaw. It's you know. Right. Exactly. I mean, not in my book. Not in my book. Right. I tell you what. If if to, for me to answer this one hundred percent accurately on the fly on this phone call, what I would say is this: go to the box set that Apple put out of the Let It Be uh, album, and in the notes, um, I would say in there, they will tell you if this part was in the film, that it, here's where it was changed. I'm going to oh. guess. Oh, um, okay. That's what I'm going to guess. And um, because the notes in there are pretty detailed. Yeah, okay. okay. I'll check that. Um, I did. One of the things I really like about Peter Jackson is it says this – this version, this cut, actually winds up on the Let It Be album. 
And then you right. can actually do some decoding and like, okay, so now we know what Spectre, right? This is what Spectre had. This is what he might have done, right? The, right. Anyway, uh, very, very interesting stuff. So let's talk more about the current book and some of the revelations, some of the new stuff you found. What got you really excited about what you were going to put in there that um, people didn't know before? Well, I, one of the people that I talked to was one of the camera people on Magical Mystery Tour. And he talked about how the sort of chaos was kind of refreshing, that he was someone that was used to working on, you know, regular sort of linear films. And he mm-hmm. found this kind of, you know, let's make up a show, on, you know, on our own here, on the fly, really fun and exciting. And he really huh. liked it. He thought it was great. Okay. Uh, and this yeah. is a guy that has gone on, has, you know, still makes movies. He's still involved with major motion pictures. And huh. he just thought it was great. And he said it was What's very much name? Paul. Hmm. Michael Saracen was his name now. See, you know, it's some of this research is literally like it's two years old at this point. I, I yeah. name everybody in the, in, the, in the preface, in the acknowledgments, I name all of these folks that I interviewed. I make it very clear okay. who they okay. are. And I, I right, really so should check the spelling there. Yeah, yeah I should fine. have a book. I should have a copy of the book no, in no, front of fine. me when I do the interviews. No, um, but you know, the, I thought that was really cool because I yeah. think that you know the magical mystery tour film. You know, it was very much like you know it. it, it you know, I talk about how ne- Let It Be was met very negatively. You know, as you know, magical mystery tour was met very negatively for a variety yeah. of reasons. I don't think we need to re- kind of rehash them all here. But in retrospect, now. I think we see that movie, and I think we see it, you know, through different eyes. I mean, I think some of us, you know, see it through kaleidoscope eyes. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So, but I think it, I think it's, it's a very sort of avant-garde film, and I think it, it's kind of a, it's a series of set pieces. So it's another sort of step towards what ends up becoming music videos. You know, yeah. which I think yeah. is something that is uh, significant. And I think it's just become one of those cult movies. I mean, I think for people of a certain generation, I mean, where they saw the film the first time at the sort of midnight movies, you know, the cult movies, the driving right. movies. And it becomes this thing that it, it sort of transcends it being a Beatle movie or it being a movie that initially was kind of a problem. So, you know, there's that. I mean, if you – a lot of my research on the Yellow Submarine part of the book, and I make this very clear – was through the Bob Hieronymus books. He wrote two right. books on right. Yellow Submarine, which those are the definitive books on the right. film. I mean, that's a life's work in there. Right. And, I mean, he really brings out the significance of the collaborators, of all the people that worked on the film. And that was yeah. another thing I wanted to do, is I wanted to give due to the to the filmmakers, to the other people, not just the Beatles, not just Richard Lester or Michael Lindsay Hogg, you know, but the the camera people, the actors, the actresses, the writers, the cinematographers, you know, all of those people that they should get their due, you know, and it's significant. And how many of them were so part of the important sort of British films of the 60s and how many of them have gone on to have long careers. It's amazing how many people worked on those films who then yeah. went on to work on the Harry Potter films, the Lord of the oh. Rings films. You know, they, they had worked on the James Bond films. I mean, we're talking about the most iconic movies that have ever been made in, you know, you know, since World War II, you know. And so, you know, that was a revelation to me, 
that, you know, the quality of the, the people, this wasn't just like, oh, get, get a bunch of people together, we're just making some kind of, you know, pop music movie, or we're just making some druggy movie, or whatever. No, these were, these were important people. You know, the, the, the Disney movie, the, 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 the child's animated film up to that point, it would take like three years to make an animated film, a right, visual right. film, where Yellow Submarine was made more or less in a year, you know, which is extraordinary, what they were able to accomplish in such a short period of time. I think there's this sense of sort of creating something brand new that had not existed before. And I think right. that was so much of what the 60s kind of ethos was about, of right. like, you know, we're not going to focus group this. We're not going to sit around and worry about it. We're not going to make sure that it's already been done a 100 times and, you know, sell the, you know, the rights to, you know, Japan or whatever. It's like, you know, let's just do it and let's try new things and let's experiment and let's let's see what happens. And it's amazing how those things are we're still here we are it's 60 years later almost on some of these things and we're still talking about them yeah yeah well right um and i think one of the things that i did get to in your book was that the dp on hard days night had actually worked on the uh, the stanley kubrick dr uh, strange love strange love yeah, yeah. right it's what's that guy's person. name that's, that's yeah. a fascinating detail tell me about yeah. that guy well what's interesting about him or about those two films is first of all they're very much sort of back to back okay yes. but you're talking about two totally different filmmakers with a totally different approach you know Lester was very much in this cinema verite you know coming from television and making commercials fast cuts it's a pop group let's go let's just do it let's just make it right. happen don't worry about it and as you know probably Kubrick is the master of detail and storyboarding everything every single little thing. I mean, that's why he didn't make so many films in his lifetime, because of the level of detail. I've, I'm sure you've seen these films about the making of The Shining in particular. I yes. mean, there's so yes. much that goes on in that film that is just, it, it's, it seems like it's nothing. It's random. You don't even see it. It's just going by on the screen. But when you see what he intended to do and what he did and, 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 the, and all of this, so, so you've got this director who's and both films are in black and white. Who's he's? This guy is working with two totally different geniuses. You know, right. everybody knows Kubrick is a genius. I think Lester sometimes doesn't get the due. I've said this on some of the other interviews I've done. You know, because Lester has mostly done comedies, not exclusively. I think sometimes he doesn't get the due that he he deserves, which is the same yeah. I think for comedic actors versus dramatic yeah, totally. actors. Totally. You know, yeah. so but. You know, Lester is, you know, he's brilliant. You know, he Lester makes A Hard Day's Night, okay? Then he makes The Knack and How to Get It, which wins the Palm Door, okay, at Cannes. The first British film, I believe, since The Third Man to win it. I mean, decades, okay? Huh. Then he makes Help, okay? Yeah. I mean, literally, it's like, oh, I've got a little time to kill. Yeah, I'll make this movie, okay? Mm. You know? So he is really important. You know, I think that there's been a lot of directors that are really very influenced by him. Soderbergh is very influenced by him. They did a book together where it's oh, Soderbergh interviewing Lester basically oh, for the that. entire book. 
And, you know, some of it is Soderbergh's kind of diaries and what he's going through and trying to juggle different film projects. It's a really interesting book. Oh, and um, so, you know, Lester, I think, you know, within the world of the Beatles, I think he gets his due. You know, he is the man driving A Hard Day's Night and Help. But I think beyond that, I think sometimes people, you know, kind of forget, you know, that's, you know, he did Three Musketeers movie and right, Robin right. and Marion. And I mean, you know, he's a, he's a great filmmaker, you know. Yeah, I, I've always thought Lester was a really interesting, I mean, both the script and the director they get to that thing are just kind of bullseyes. And just like one of the cosmic, like the planets just aligned for Hard Day's Night. Um, tell me more about, there, there was this other book that I don't know, but I'm sure you've looked at it, is this book comparing the Beatles uh, stuff to James Bond? Is that yes, I read that book. That's a great yeah. book. And, oh, interesting. You know, that, tell me about that. It's, 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 well, I'll just say this. It's, a, it's two things. It's a great book, and it takes you right up to date, okay? It, you, you get right up to date, whatever it is, two, 2021 or whatever. And, okay. you know, I was doing this already with my book where right. it was like all of the same people. You know, not I should have said that's not correct. There were a lot of the same people who worked on the right. Beatle movies, who worked on the Bond films. And then just the whole influence of of the sp the British spy movies on film right. in general in the 60s, whether right. they were serious films, you know, like The Spy Who Came In From The Cold or The Ipcris right. File, and all the spoofs, you know, in like Flint and all of that stuff. Right. I mean, right. it's, there, it's sort of like, this is, you know, you have this moment where it's sort of like the Beatles and Bond explode in, in right. London at the same right. time. And right. it becomes sort of the center of the universe, you know. Yeah. And, and I, I talk about this in the book in terms of, you know, in terms of movies, Hollywood was always the place, obviously American films. Then right. after World War II, you certainly get, you know, France and Italy become important places, not just for film, but for you know, for style, for fashion, for photography, for art, whatever the case may be, for culture, yeah. where it's the center of culture. And then it kind of moves to, it kind of moves to England. You know, it kind of becomes London, you know, swinging London. I mean, it's, right. I know it's a cliche, but it is sort of like everything is happening, you know, fashion, oh, yeah. photography, oh, yeah. you know, hairstyles, oh, yeah. music. I mean, everything. And everybody wants to work there. I mean, that's what, right. you know, Antonioni goes to London to make Blow Up, you know? Right, I mean, he right. had made all these great Italian films. He was the master, right. you know? Right. I mean, La Ventura, you know? And he right. goes and makes Blow Up in London. Right. And it, it's very much about, you know, it's like David Bailey kind of character. and right. But it's still this kind of, it's still Antonioni, you know, it's, a, it's quiet parts and it's mysterious and it's just these scenes of, like, nature and barren landscapes and you know, it's like, you know, Godard, too. I mean, Godard worked with the Stones. He wanted to work with the Beatles. You know, I talk, yeah. again, I talk about this in, in the in the book, huh. too. That's huh. how he ends huh. up doing, you know, Sympathy for the Devil or One Plus yeah. One. It's kind of two different films. It's his cut and the cut that the, the studio wanted to do or the producers wanted to do and that whole story, huh. you know, huh. and all of that, you know. Hmm. So, you know, he was filming, he was filming that and they were doing Sympathy for the Devil, and that's when Robert Kennedy was shot, you know. And Jagger ch had to change the lyrics, you know. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's all of this stuff is fascinating and how it yeah. all sort of ties together. I think what happened in the 60s was rapid cultural change. 
where I think we live in a time now where we live in rapid technological change. I don't think we'll ever see sort of seismic cultural change and and explosions like we have in the past. I think technology has replaced it, unfortunately. Well, I don't know. Uh, You know, the first thing that comes to mind is uh, the binary. We've totally broken the binary for genders, and that's like this huge thing that's happened in the last 10 years. That's, you know, very similar to me to what the, the cultural upheaval in the 60s. Right, exactly. And that's why the, the, I think there's a sense, and, you know, I'm, I'm not going to – I don't want to get political, but I think there's a sense on the right is they don't like that. They, they want the oh, sexes yeah, to no. be – to be apart from one another. And if you go through oh, yeah. history and look at cultural histories, when you get to the part where they really want the separation of sexes, they want them almost at each other's throats, that's usually when that civilization starts to to break or crumble or change, not necessarily in, in good ways, right. you know. Right. Yeah. So remind me, who wrote this James Bond book? What's the author? Do you... you know, I don't remember his name, but okay. it's, it's right, one I'll of those books. That a major publisher did it. It's very much out there. It's easy to right. find. It's in my bibliography. I think I'm that happy. I... I'm, I'm just glad that you read it and re- recommended it. That means I have to read yeah, it. Yeah, I highly so. recommend it. Yeah, cool. Good. Um, I have to jump off now, but Steve, this has been so great talking to you. Such great material. I will, I'll drop you a note when this thing drops, and um, I hope it, I hope we're able to help um, with your book sales. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. And you know, your your work, I've always admired your work. I pulled out, you know, Hard Rain, and I pulled out one of your Beatles books today. You know, I have those original first edition hardcovers. Oh, Someday that's we have to meet sweet. in person because I need oh, yeah. to have those signed by you to me. Oh, that's very <laughs> sweet. I'd, of course, I'd be happy to do that. But let, uh, are you in the New York area? Yeah, I'm in the New York area. Someday okay, yeah. we'll so, have to do that. Someday, you yeah. You are an influence on me. Now, those well, are, those are serious works, you know. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. This, I've had a blast. So thanks a lot for chatting. All right. Thank you very much. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Yeah, 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 yeah.